Yeah, there we go. Okay. Well, welcome to our first day dedicated to the Nicene Creed, which is something that we say, of course, every week. And what I'd like to do today is talk to you about the history of the Creed. And if we get into it, we'll have time to look a little bit about the original intent line by line. I do want to tell you up front, though, before I start, that next week, it's funny that we're starting a series on the Creed and we're going to interrupt it, but we're going to interrupt it because next week uh, is going to be with us from the diocese, the Reverend Canon John Newton, who is the Bishop's Chief of Staff. Formerly, he was the Director of Spiritual Formation in the Diocese of Texas, and he came to us back in early May, and you'll hear this in, this, in the service as well. He came in early May. Um, I'd invited him to preach in my absence. He, he couldn't do that, so he came in my presence, which was super great. And he called me like a month ago and was like, I had such a good time in May. Can I come back to St. Thomas? And yeah, that's neat. Or else, It's a good excuse for checking in on us. I don't know. Uh, anyway, he... He's coming back. He'll be preaching in the adult forum. He's going to be talking about something really, really interesting, I think, which is, in his opinion, how it is that we as adults in the church have difficult conversations and remain unified. I don't think I've ever been to that kind of program before because uh, I can barely do that with my parents, uh, let alone people I don't know. So I hope you'll make time to come and join. And John is very gifted in facilitating conversations instead of just being a pedant. So I hope you come for that because um, really, really great guy. And expect next week a sermon that's short and memorable and coherent, unlike what you normally get. So, so that'll be John Newton next week. Okay, this week, though, we'll talk about the Nicene Creed. Now, now many people are familiar that we, we have actually several major creeds in the church. Um, the one we say at our baptism, in the baptismal service, is the Apostles' Creed, and that's actually the older and more succinct of the two. The Nicene Creed came a little bit after that, particularly in the version that we have. If you want a real treat, you can look at the Athanasian Creed in the back of the prayer book. Sometimes we inflict this on parishioners during Lent to make them really sorry um, for their sins, and even worse, to make them sorry for coming to church. Uh, This is why we don't do it at St. Thomas. But if you ever thought that Nicene Creed was long, Read the Athanasian Creed and be grateful we say the Nicene one. Okay, so just to give you an idea, the Nicene Creed that we say, and we say it every week, and we've been doing that actually since the mid to late 700s of our common era, that's that's A.D. or C.E., was really penned for the first time at the Council of Nicaea, in 325 of our common era, that's A.D., right? Now, you know most historians use that C.E. instead of the A.D. There's a couple reasons for that. Jesus wasn't born in zero, that being the biggest one. Uh, The other is that um, it can be whatever um, offensive to other people in the world. So that either stands for common era or Christian era. That's normally what I use because that's the level at which I was trained as we use CE. So if you hear that, just think in your head, oh, he means AD. Is that okay? 325 is when we wrote mostly the version that we got, um, minus all that bit about the Holy Spirit. The Creed in 325 said, we believe in, in everything we said about Jesus, and the Creed said, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the end. The other bit, God from God, no, the other bit about who proceeds from the Father and the Son, that came at the Council of Chalcedon in 384. Uh, that's when we got the other bit about the, the one holy apostolic church, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection, and resurrection of the dead. Okay? That's when we got the other addendum to the creed. So the creed has looked like we have it now, mostly since then. And of course, there's only one other little phrase that God added when there was a major schism. I think it's 1050, and and, and my head gets fuzzy. It used to be 
My brain used to work really well. When is it? 10.55. See, there we go. All right, good. This is what happens when we send people to Iona. They learn stuff. Um, <laughs> 10.55 is when the creed changed for the almost last time. There's just other two. I'm going to tell you about the changes to the creed first and then go back and, and, and walk you where the creed came from. Okay? So 10.55 is when this little bit was introduced to the creed for the first time. It's called the filioque. The creed used to say proceeds from the Father. And then in 1055, the Bishop of Rome unilaterally decided that the creed should say proceeds from the Father and the Son, which in Latin is filioque, and the Son. Okay? Um, the Bishop of Rome did that without consulting the Patriarch of Constantinople, who at the time actually presided over the wealthier and bigger part of the Christian Empire. Right? So Rome was, was really, really not nice until they stole all that money from indulgences. You know, so you're thinking about the Reformation. It was kind of a cesspool, just to be honest with you. It had been sacked by the Visigoths and the Vandals. Anyway, um, the Bishop of Rome said, I'm more important than the Patriarch of Constantinople, and I'll prove it. I'll change the creed. And, and this resulted in a schism in which the Patriarch of, Ale uh, Patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated the Pope, and the Pope excommunicated the, the patriarch, and ever since then, the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church have been separate. And, and just so you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was the phrase, and the son. Um, still a bone of contention between the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. Some folks believe that if the uh, Roman Catholic Church were able to make the concession on this language that there actually could maybe be some healing of that schism. The other bit, right, is that the Roman Catholic Church um, preferred sculpture and the Orthodox Church, even since then, preferred painting, notably in icons. Very ironically, the Roman Church thought that the Greek, uh, the Orthodox Church, the people were praying to the icons when they knew they weren't praying to their own sculptures, right? How funny, right? And, and of course, the Orthodox Church knew they were praying through the icons, through them, not to them, but thought that the Romans were praying to the sculptures. <laughs> How funny, right? So those, those little differences often get exacerbated, and then here's this, this, this schism that's resulted really in some parallel development between the two, the two uh, major bodies of Christianity. And just to remind you, there's the Roman Catholic Church as a major body. There's the Orthodox Church is, because there's not one. You know, there's the Russian and the Antioch and the Greek and the Ethiopic. And then there's the Protestant Church is. Does this make sense? So those are the three big divisions in Christianity. And, and, and one of them comes from this here. Uh, the other big change in the creed comes, and I could be wrong, but I don't think so, comes in 1976. And does anybody know what happened in 1976 to the Nicene Creed? There was one major substantive change. Anybody here grew up in the 1928 prayer book? Tell me how you said the creed in that book. You didn't say the Nicene Creed? How interesting. Yeah. So, in, in uh, the 1928 prayer book, one said, I believe in God the Father. And since 1976, so there's the swap, and then there's also the we believe. Okay? We believe. That's actually a pretty major substantive change to go from first person singular to first person plural. Well, I think it is. Okay? Um, maybe one other date to tell you that's interesting about the creed is who put it in the Eucharist. So it was written here, updated there, and did not appear in any Eucharistic service with any regularity until around that year. Uh, and do you know who put it in? If you know your, your, your European or world history. 
none other than in German, um, Karl der Grosse, who in France you may know as Charlemagne, first Holy Roman Emperor, is the one who inserted the Nicene Creed into the Eucharist uh, right before the Eucharist, so not where it is now, right before the Eucharist. Okay, so let's back up and tell you a little bit about the creed's development with sort of those dates in front of you, okay? Um, what we know, uh, what we think, most scholars will tell you that um, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus happens around the year 30, okay? And, and most scholars will tell you the birth of Jesus happens in the year 4, BCE. So, so they're putting Jesus at the age of 33 or 34 at the time of the crucifixion and, and, and resurrection. So you're, you're, you're thinking 30 is the first Easter. Okay. Now, uh, as with our Hebrew Bible, we know that stories were circulated orally before they were written. And we know that those oral stories were circulated in the environs around Jerusalem before they made it anywhere else. Well, that makes sense. That's where the event happened, right? And then Jerusalem being a semi-major hub if you're Jewish because it's the only place where you can worship at the temple. And just to put that in perspective, you've heard about synagogues. We still have them today. Synagogues are places of study and corporate prayer. However, when the temple was still around, you still had to go there. Every year, if you could, on Yom Kippur and on Passover, didn't matter if you were a Sadducee or a Pharisee, if you were an Essene, you might have boycotted or girlcotted that thing, but uh, the other people always had to go. No matter what they thought about what you're supposed to do in the synagogue, they had to go to the temple. So everyone's going to the temple until the year 70, when the temple gets destroyed. Okay, that means that even if you live in somewhere like Babylon, you're coming to Jerusalem, theoretically, once a year, if you have the means, and then you're going back, which accounts for how Christianity, or the Jesus movement, actually the earliest thing it was called, was the way, and Paul refers to it as the way in, um, in several of his epistles. Uh, that's how the story spread quickly, is that people came and heard it and took it out. Does that make sense? So this is not a cosmopolitan world. The local people did not say, let's go on vacation to Spain. They said, let's go on vacation and only till the fields five hours instead of seven. Right? That was vacation. Okay? So, so again, it was people coming in and going out. Just to put in perspective, we think that the oldest parts of our New Testament are not the Gospels to begin with. Oldest parts of the New Testament, we think um, oldest thing would be the document called 1 Thessalonians. And right around there would be the document called the Letter to the Galatians. Right? So, much older than the Gospels, these ones may be written around the years 45 or 50 or even 55. There's a gradient because you know, there's not like a date in the documents as if we had the original ones anyway. So, so again, put that in perspective the first writings that we have found are 15 to 20 years after the event. Okay? And that tells you that in many ways, the history of the early church worked very differently from the history that, that we think we record. We now think that we record history factually, objectively. They were not interested in that at all. Actually, this is, this is a new phenomenon that, that's, that's come. Many of you have seen this. I think we used to think we recorded history objectually and factually, but over the last 10 years, there's been this really big suspicion in news media. Have you noticed it? Um, and we've decided actually that, that Fox News and NPR and CNN all have their slant. Well, well back then, it was all known everybody had a slant. <laughs> the news was not meant to be objective, uh, objective or, fac or, or, or factionless. It was meant to convince you of a particular perspective. That was the goal. In fact, if you read the Gospels, the Gospels will tell you, this stuff was written so you'd believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
Not this stuff was written so you'd have, a, you know, a completely objective, disinterested perspective on a historical being that you've never heard of and could care less about. Right? It's meant so that you can believe. So, so anytime you read a biography uh, in the ancient world, they're really what we call hagiographies, that is, lives of the holy people or the saints. And they're written so that you'll come out saying, that was a holy person, I should be like them. Well, this is true of our New Testament. I just want to make sure we, we, we know. They definitely have a goal in mind when they're writing these documents. And, and these are our first writings. And how interesting, when you read the letters of Paul, 15 or 20 years after the event, you learn almost nothing about Jesus. The only thing you learn from Paul is that Jesus had a Last Supper, and he said, this bread is my body and this wine is my blood. That's it. You don't learn anything about Mary or Joseph. You don't learn any parables. You learn he died on a cross. And that's it. We don't get any of those other details until some range around the year 70 when we think we get the Gospel of Mark. So again, notice how much time's elapsed. And there's like 40 years. That's a generation, which actually makes sense why they're writing it down, because there's a generational shift in which people no longer know directly. They no longer know the stories firsthand. The stories start to become secondhand. So then that starts to get written and disseminated. We think Mark's the oldest. Depending who you read, Matthew comes next, maybe Luke. John definitely last. And nobody really quarrels with that, that timing. And um, how interesting to find out, and this is something that's still true in the world today, that even by the year 100, different communities preferred different Gospels. Those of you who have read the Gospels, you have a favorite? Anybody have a clear favorite? What's your favorite? John. John, why? So Suzanne prefers John because, she said, Jesus talks more about love and serving the poor and the downtrodden. Okay, fair. Anybody else? Carol? I like Matthew. Why do you like Matthew? I think it's easy to read. It's very straightforward and it has my favorite stories in it. So Matthew, easy to read, straightforward, has your favorite stories. Anybody else? There's a gospel you prefer, having read the four. Maybe it's helpful for me to tell you a little bit how they're different in the minds of people who do this professionally. Is that okay? Mark's the first one. It's the shortest. It actually has, it's written sort of at the Newsweek level, which is like at a seventh grade reading level. So it, it, it's the most succinct. Actually, Mark ends with the women seeing the resurrected Jesus and running away in terror. The end. <laughs> it's not a lovely ending. Someone later wrote a different ending, um, but it's later. So that's the original. They see the resurrection and they're terrified. I'd probably be pretty scared too, just to be honest, right? I mean, maybe I'd calm down later, but, but like the book. Everything in Mark happens immediately, and the neat thing about Mark is there's two neat things. Um, one is that every time someone knows Jesus is the Messiah, he tells them to be quiet. Mark has this thing called the gospel secret where he tells everyone to not tell who he is. Remember, this is, the, we think, the oldest gospel. Why is that? Well, um, no one knows the answer to why, but a lot of people say, you know, in some ways the gospel is like a joke. If I tell you a joke and you don't get it, and then I explain it to you, will it be funny? That's never worked for me. Oh, now I see why you're laughing at it, but it's still not funny. This, this is how most people approach this, and they say the reason Jesus tells people to be quiet is because people will hear the word Messiah and think warrior, fighter, king instead of who Jesus wanted to be. He would rather people not say anything than that they tell the wrong thing. And the interesting thing about Mark is the only people who know who Jesus is are possessed by unclean spirits. <laughs> All of the sane people 
get him wrong in the whole book, especially the disciples. Um, the other thing about Mark that's interesting is Jesus does a bunch of miracles before he says a word to prove that he's worth listening to. I promise this is going somewhere. Okay? That's Mark, oldest one. Then comes Matthew or Luke. Matthew, we say, written to a Jewish audience primarily because it has phrases like kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. If you're Jewish, you try to refrain from that word God because it starts to become wrapped up in a holy name, so you don't do that. The other thing that's famous in, in Matthew is that Jesus gives a sermon on the, the mount. You know who else gave a sermon on the mount? Hint. Yeah, you got it. Moses. A lot of scholars will tell you in Matthew, Jesus is the new Moses, giving a new law, having met with God on a mountaintop. Makes sense if you're Jewish, okay? You're going to get this re representation of the law. Uh, Matthew has really interesting Jewish genealogy. Uh, it's, it's totally different from Luke's. Goes back to Abraham, father of the Jewish nation, right? And Matthew is also the one who says, Jesus says, I didn't come to change a jot or a tittle from the law. And if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, you got no hope. Sounds pretty severe. Okay, so this is probably written to Pharisees, by the way. Okay, there's Matthew, very Jewish imagery. Then there's Luke. And if you're looking for social justice, that's Luke. Luke is the one where Jesus goes around talking to women, teaching them like their disciples. Remember, that's the one where Mary sits at his feet and Martha's all in a tizzy, and Jesus says that's fine that she did that. Um, talking to women, touching them, that's the one where Jesus, more than anything, cares about poor people. So in Luke, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. In Matthew, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Maybe they're the same thing, but not in my head. They're different things, right? Um, Luke also is the one where Jesus prays every time he does anything. So when he gets baptized, the dove comes down, he's praying when that happens. That's the only gospel where he's doing the, the praying. It has stories like Lazarus and the rich man, that parable. What do you know? It's about poverty once again. That's in Luke. And in Luke, Jesus doesn't give the Sermon on the Mountain. He gives it on the, do you know? He gives it on the plain where everybody's equal and there's no hierarchy. And the genealogy in Luke goes not to Abraham. It goes all the way back to, to Adam. And Jesus is not a descendant of David's son Solomon. Jesus is a descendant of Nathan, who's the prophet who went to David and said, you stole that lady's life. Interesting book. Interesting book. Then there's John, in which Jesus does more talking than any book, and Jesus actually talks like a Greek philosopher. So if you're Greek, Luke is for you, because it's written to everybody, but John is to the philosophical type. And that's why John is represented by the eagle. If you know this, these things, there's the ox, the human being, uh, the eagle, and what's the other one? Is it the lion? the lion. And John's the eagle because he has the eagle perspective. And this is the one where Jesus has seven things like, I am the good shepherd, or I am the way and the truth of life. I'm the vine. He has these I am sayings. This is the one where they come to arrest him and they say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am, and everybody falls on their back. Because John is trying to tell you Jesus is invoking the sacred name of God, and people fall back at that. It's funny that he's Greek in doing that, and the Hebrew people didn't do that. Anyway, four different Gospels from different perspectives. Well, it turns out, you know, we found many others. And each community that we're finding had their favorites. And they also had their favorite writings, many of which made it into our New Testament, and some of them didn't. We didn't decide what was in the Bible as an Orthodox church until that year. That wasn't even decided here. So, so, so think through this a little bit. Many of the Gospels aren't even written until after this cataclysmic date in which the Jewish nation 
tried to have a rebellion against the Romans and was just crushed. The temple was burned to the ground and um, the last people were, were totally extinguished in 73 at the place called Masada. Up until that time, the, the, the sort of the, the Christian, again, that's not an appropriate word, the, the way, the followers of the way, worshiped at the temple. They saw themselves as a reform movement in Judaism. When the people said, we're going to fight Rome, many people in the way said, we're not. We're loyal Roman citizens. And a lot of scholars will tell you that's when there became a sharper distinction than ever between Jews and Christians. And it was over who supports the rebellion and who doesn't support the rebellion. Um, the Roman Empire, it turns out, had a lot more sympathy for the Jewish beliefs and the Jewish faith because even though they were not Roman in that they were monotheistic and they had different traditions and rituals, they were really old. So antiquity was preferred in antiquity as it is now, right? If I told you I made up a new religion and want to join, you'd probably say no. <laughs> I'm going to go with a historic one. That was what they were doing at the time. So there's this, there's this differentiation. The Christians were trying to say, no, no, we're part of Judaism. And the Jewish people were saying, no, you're not. Get rid of them. There was nonetheless not a single systemic persecution of Christians in the first century. The only persecution of Christians that happened in the first century was in Rome in around the year 64 when Nero was the emperor and his own people thought he started the fire that burned Rome down. He did it so that he could rebuild Rome in his own image. He blamed it on Christians and rounded up all the Christians in Rome, not outside, basically tried them not for their beliefs but for arson and had them brutally executed. So they were the scapegoats of Nero burning down Rome. Think about that's not a persecution for religious beliefs. That's a scapegoating of people who are already on the margin because their claim for their religion being based in antiquity is being disputed. Okay? That's like picking on Scientologists. Maybe that's not a good example. <laughs> I, I think it's actually a pretty good example, right? Uh, unless you happen to love Tom Cruise's movies. Okay, so, so um, that's, what, that's really the only persecution of Christians. And again, it had nothing to do with their religion. It had to do with their social identity. We get to the end of the first century, and Christianity is growing, we think, at a rate of about 10% a year. Just to put that in perspective, that's been the steady growth rate of the Mormon church since the 1860s. And, and now, what do you know, there's lots of Mormons. The 10% growth rate is pretty good over 100 years. Okay? We think the initial batch of Christians, maybe 200, 300, Acts has thousands of people, but there's just really no way that those numbers can be right, given how small Jerusalem was. It just wouldn't have fit that many people. So, so we think a much milder number, which is a much, much more steady growth rate. Well, well, into the first century, Jewish people can't go to Jerusalem anymore because there's no temple. They can't worship there. That's when synagogues start to develop. Again, there's already been this division between Jewish and Christian identities, and the story's spreading throughout the empire, and it's spreading in a lot of different, different ways. Like I told you, there's four Gospels that are in our Bible, but there's some other ones, and they start to get written. Like the Gospel of Thomas. You've heard of that one before? Um, that most certainly was written around 135. So to give you an idea, that's at least 30 years newer, another generation newer than the Gospel of John. Uh, and that one really only had a hold, it seems, in Egypt. It didn't really have a hold anywhere else. Part of the reason it didn't make it into our New Testament is it didn't have a hold anywhere else but Egypt. There's some other ones that we found that are full of wacky ideas. And, and in general, you know that, that, that a gospel is newer depending on what wacky idea it's filled with because there were other philosophical developments. Things like Gnosticism, maybe you've heard that word before. You may not know what it means, that's okay. But, but Gnosticism is only as old as about 130. So if there's anything Gnostic in a gospel, it's got to be newer than that. Does, that. does that sort of make sense? When people find things and they say, this happens in Newsweek, remember, seventh grade reading level, big challenges from the Gospel of Judas. I mean, the Gospel of Judas was 200 years after the other ones. And we know that because they refer to things that were only happening 200 years after the other ones. So not that controversial, it turns out, after all. Does it make sense what I'm saying? 
these other little documents had strong followings in small pockets. There's another persecution that happens during that, that second century of our common era, and that happens in Gaul. Marcus Aurelius, the, 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 the um, philosopher king, uh, has a very local persecution of Christians in the Gaul. That's modern-day France, the Gallic region. It lasts a very short time, and it's only there. It's not anywhere else in the empire. Okay? So, so maybe you've heard Christians were hunted down, and they were these persecuted people, not for 200 years. Okay? That doesn't happen until the emperor Diocletian, who takes... The, the, the emperor's chair and actually divides it into four seats. He splits the empire from one emperor into four co-emperors in 298, and that begins what's called the Great Persecution. Diocletian begins a systemic and systematic persecution of Christians, and basically the litmus test is that they have to offer a sacrifice, an animal or a libation sacrifice, to the genius of the emperor. Genius means like their, their sort of spirit that rises to heaven. If they'll do that, they pass. If they won't, they die. Now that goes all the way from Rome, even the Rome was getting very, very weak at the time, right? Goes all the way up from Rome, all the way up to the British Isles. That goes all the way out past modern Turkey and all the way out to Spain in the other direction. It lasts, like I said, for 10 years until the year 308. During that time is this transformational bit in the part of the church because there are some people who are bishops or priests, and let's not think that there's unified, Christianity has not been a legal religion, even if it's been tolerated, yet. That means that churches met in people's homes, or they met in catacombs, not necessarily because they were afraid that if someone found out they were meeting, they'd be killed, but because there were no public places for worship. None. So when you think about a church, don't think about 200 people. No home was that big. Think about people of Groups of 15 people, 25 people. How interesting, each one of those groups would have a presbyter, a priest, and a bishop. There were lots of bishops. A bishop was overseeing a house church, or two, or three, not a diocese. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? For, this is for the first th almost 300 years. During that great persecution, people started outing Christians, because after all, that's fun, right? Uh, it's fun to get your neighbor in trouble, especially if you don't like them for any other reason. You just call them Christians. So that happened, and there's people who are taking this test. And what do you know? A lot of bishops and priests, when faced with the option of sacrifice to the, geni the genius of the emperor and live, or refuse and die, they chose the pragmatic solution, sacrificing to the genius of the emperor, and then repented after doing it, and went back to serving their little congregations. Now, you may or may not agree with this approach. When you read something like The Lives of the Saints, the old version, you'll find lots of these people chose not to do it and died horrifically. And, 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 uh, these, in some ways, resemble fairy tales more than anything else, right? Uh, anybody read any of these Lives of the Saints? i just tell you one. If you, you, can, you can read these in other literature, even if you don't, don't read the oldest one. Anybody read Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt? So I'm listening to that because it's really, really long. And when I'm on, on a bike, which I hate being on, it just sort of helps me not be on the bike. You know, these are stories where they say convert or die. And, and it's, always these, it's always these virgin martyrs who say no. And they do things like cut one of their breasts off. And, and then they'll take their breast and throw it at the judge. And he'll be stricken blind, deaf, and mute for the rest of his life. And then they'll say, well, cut the other one off. And they throw that at the other judge. <laughs> I mean, you hear how this is like a crazy story? They'll throw that at the other judge. And then they'll do things like put him on a fire and because they pray, the fire doesn't hurt them. And then they finally say, okay, Jesus, I'm ready to die. So when they try to cut their head off, it works. These are the kinds of stories that, that were circulating that are written at this time in the Great Persecution. People who are not afraid of martyrdom but embrace it. It would sort of make sense when, when you're trying to steer people toward that 
option, right? That, that, it's, that it's lovely to live this sort of, sort of bit. Well, the Great Persecution ends in 308, and of course, you know, the most salient event for our creed actually happens in the year 312, when one of the four co-emperors, so it's actually, Constantine had the title Caesar, which is lower than emperor. Uh, there's basically two co-emperors and two junior emperors, and the juniors are called the Caesars. Constantine um, is a Caesar, and he is based in England, but he decides to take on the other Caesar, and they have this fight. Constantine basically desires, decides to conquer the empire for himself. And they come to a really big, important battle outside the Milvan Bridge. And the night before the battle, Constantine gets... Constantine's mother, by the way, was Christian. His father was, a, was a, um, likely a Celtic polytheist, so he knows both things. Of course, in the Celtic tradition, you worship the sun. And what do you know? The night before, he sees the sun shining with the following symbol. Anybody read James Carroll's book, Constantine's Sword? Good. <laughs> this is what Constantine sees in the sun. And he hears the voice saying, In hocto signo es. I said that poorly. Nick, what's the good? That's even better. See, Latin was not one of the, the, the three languages I learned. Um, this, you've seen, maybe I can make it better than that. Anybody seen that before? If you've been to a Roman Catholic church, you've definitely, definitely seen it. Sometimes you'll see it on the flag that the Agnus Dei is holding. Sometimes you'll see the accompanying thing on the flag that the Agnus Dei is holding that. There's a lot of discussion as to, is this representing the Latin phrase, or is it representing Greek? So, so again, a lot of people will tell you, this is what Constantine heard from heaven when he saw the Cairo. Constantine did not, did not see that image. It's really important. He saw that one. And he heard on the eve of the Battle of the Milvan Bridge, in this sign you will be victorious, or in this sign you will conquer. So, uh, the night before, or the morning of, depending how you read it, he has all of his soldiers paint this sign on their shields, and sure enough, he won the Battle of the Milvan Bridge, and became then, essentially, if not the superior junior Caesar, than one of the emperors by taking half of the known empire. Does that make sense? Uh, so, so it's important to know the Agnus Dei, the lamb, who has the flag and has the halo. Do you know what I'm talking about? That represents Jesus, the lamb of God, right? Is basically, in one tradition, carrying that, saying, you will conquer in the sign of the Agnus Dei, the lamb of God. This, in Greek, could instead be the letters Yoda, Eta, Sigma, which is actually, if you added three other letters on, that would make the name Jesus. So it's either in this sign you'll conquer, or it's the beginning of Jesus in Greek. This one, the, the Cairo, is the beginning of the word Christos in Greek, or Christ. Interestingly enough, after Constantine, you know that star that the Magi see in the sky? Tradition says it looked like that. <laughs> and that's what the Magi followed to Bethlehem, or Nazareth, depending where they ended up going. Okay? So in 312, Constantine wins this victory and actually declares that Christianity is not a legal religion, but a tolerated one. And some people aren't sure about the true grit of Constantine's own conversion because he waited until the eve before his death to be baptized. He also minted some coins that had the sun on one side and the Cairo on the other. So was he hedging his bet? We just don't, we, 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 we don't know how all in he was. Does that sort of make sense? Yes, sir. Are you going to talk about... Why he might have been baptized on his deathbed? Yes. Okay. And we're going to talk about how he was uh, 
a heretic Christian his whole life. <laughs> so, so Constantine has this conversion. Later in 321, he decides to make Christian clergy receive the same benefits as pagan clergy. It is for the first time Christian um, um, priests and bishops start to get uh, exonerated from state income tax for the first time, 321. There's another event that happens in 318 that's really important. When Constantine converted and made this thing sort of tolerated, there grew up a division in already a very divided church. As I've told you, different parts of the region had different books that they read and said were inspired. Some people read James. A lot of people didn't. James was actually the most disputed book in our Bible. Barely made it in. Martin Luther didn't like it either. If you read the German Bible, James comes last because Martin Luther said it has the least authority. He almost removed it. Um, James barely made it in. Another book barely made it out, and that's the book The Shepherd of Hermas. And there's another book called One Enoch, you know, like the guy who walked with God and was no more, almost made it in. Turns out we have an epistle called Jude. Anybody familiar with Jude? It's one page. It's a cut and paste directly out of one Enoch, word for word, line for line. So people decided that at least part of Enoch was inspired. The rest of it, uh, they weren't sure about. Um, depending where you were as to whether Jesus had one nature, that is, he was God and looked human, he was human and God's spirit and dwelled and left him before he was crucified, um, or he had two natures, which is what the council ended up deciding. You know, when the Pope does this, this is for the two natures of Christ and for the Holy Trinity. And the five are the five wounds in Jesus. That's how they explain that. It's not the peace sign. Make sense what I'm saying? So again, there were people in the empire that believed in one nature. Those are called monophysites. Those are the people, interestingly enough, who really liked the Gospel of Thomas. And most of those people lived in Egypt or in Africa, including Ethiopia. And still, the Ethiopic church, the Ethiopic Orthodox church, is a monophysite church. They believe in one nature of Jesus. He's not human and divine. He's just one thing. Um, so lots of people have different theological beliefs when, when Constantine takes hold. And in some places, bishops had more power than other places. In some places, bishops were hermits. Like, think about St. Anthony. Does anybody know him? Sold everything he had and went and lived on a pillar uh, by himself in the desert. Uh, and then there's other places, like in Alexandria, where bishops were essentially centers of... Um, they were scholars in their community, and they were sought out worldwide for their, for their learning. Very different lifestyles. Bishop of Alexandria... Um, lived pretty well. <laughs> Bishops in the desert lived not well. They had really low, low standard of living, if that makes sense. Lots of diversity. And one of the most diverse movements in Christianity was this thing called, um, oh man, I'm going to say the wrong thing. The Donatist Controversy. So this happens around the year 312. These people pop up. When, Chris, when, the, when, the, when the persecution dies in 308, these people pop up and say, you know what? There were bishops and priests who during that great persecution offered a sacrifice to the emperor's genius for their own life. They saved it. Good for them, but they cannot be a bishop or priest anymore. They compromised their faith forever. I mean, that makes some sense, Right? This was a growing movement, but you know, there were a lot of bishops and priests that ended up doing that sacrifice. This was starting to become um, schismatic. Like this was representing a lot of infighting in this very diverse Christian church. And so Constantine intervened in the year 318. So this is someone who's now become emperor of the whole bit. He's united the empire by basically conquering the other armies. Talented general, right? And wanting to exert control. He, in 318, has a hearing on the Donatist controversy, and he has it in Alexandria, 
which is like the Sorbonne of the time or the Oxford of the time, you know, it's sort of the educational center of the known world. And he decides against the Donatists and tells them he will put the weight of the empire against their doctrine. This is when the church sort of decides that the sacraments work regardless of the piety of the priest. Does that make sense? Now, that's a good doctrine. However, if you found out that your priest were like a child molester, even if it was 20 years ago, you'd probably think, I'm going to have someone else baptize my child. I'm just, right? I probably would too. I mean, I believe in grace and all that, but, but come on, let's get serious. I'm going to have somebody else baptize my baby. So we still struggle with that. I just want to point out, we, we still struggle with that. But Constantine told the Donatists, you better shut up or I'm going to actively persecute you even unto death. <laughs> the first time that an emperor has really interfered in the doctrine of belief. Didn't happen in paganism, because guess why? There's always room for another god when you believe in a thousand. What's one more? There really was no orthodox belief other than that you honor the gods by offering sacrifice. And if you wanted to honor Zeus alongside of Jesus, that's fine. Polytheism is always open to another one. <laughs> Monotheism doesn't have room for anybody else, and that's the problem. Does that, does that sort of make sense, what I'm saying? Well, um, Constantine squashes this. Of course, you can't tell somebody they're not allowed to believe something. In fact, as Americans, I think, this is part of the American spirit, when someone tells us we can't believe something, that's when we decide we're really going to believe it. <laughs> Don't you think? Uh, it's one of those really difficult bits when you think about how do, you, how do you affect social change. Do you do it legislatively or do you do it at the grassroots? You know what I'm saying, right? How, how do you do it? Of course, we don't really know the answer to it. Anyway, what Constantine decides it, by 321 is that he is now the emperor of one empire and how strange that there are so many diverse and competing views of the religion he's decided to make legal and to extend governmental protection to. So the first thing that he does, actually, when he makes Christianity legal and gives clergy benefits, this is the thing that probably changes Christianity more than anything else before or since. He gives Christians public buildings. They never had them before. And the building he gives them is called the Basilica. <laughs> and what do you know? It's shaped like that sort of like a tombstone. And here in the rotunda is where the judge formerly sat, and now it's where the bishop sits. And there was a rail to keep people away from the judge, and in later years to keep animals away from the judge, enforced by a bailiff who became a verger, <laughs> And, uh, and what do you know? That rail is now where you go kneel. And to make this look even more sort of Christian, all you do is you just put on a little tiny apse on each side, and now it looks like a cross. And the other thing Constantine did is he looked at the vestments of priests. They wore white robes called albs. <laughs> And they wore big, fanciful garments called chasubles and said, we'll just make those Christian too. So if you're ever wondering where the clothes we wear came from, they came from pagan Greek cults. And Constantine said, that'll work for us too. Now, you can read in a book that the stole represents the yoke of Jesus Christ. Maybe it does now. Friends, it was what pagan priests wore for hundreds of years prior. Maybe you can hear that the white owl represents the light of Jesus. It's what the pagan priests wore. I just want to make sure you know this. This is when Constantine not only changes um, the Christians have a place publicly, but this is when the development of a liturgy becomes public as well, because that becomes even more important. Does it sort of make sense what I'm saying? And then Constantine decides that since now there's a public face to Christianity, there needs to be a public unity. And this is when he calls together a council to meet in the little coastal town of Nicaea in Turkey, mainly because that was central to the empire. Again, you're thinking all the way to Spain, 
all the way to almost India, that's really far, and you're thinking all the way up to the British Isles and all the way down through Africa. Right? So this is, becomes really the center of the rectangle. And he extends this wild invitation that he will bring every bishop in the empire along with two of their priests of their own choosing to come sit at the Council of Nicaea that he himself will preside at. That is, he'll be sitting in the rotunda. Does that make sense? Now, this is enormously expensive to bring these people to the central location to house and board them and he guarantees that if uh, decisions are made at the council against them, they'll have free passage home. So they won't have their heads cut off at Nicaea. Does that sort of make sense? And, and the gathering apparently was quite big and diverse. There were people who came in homespun garments like Gandhi, and there were people who came in fine hand-stitched gold embroidered vestments. Make sense? All in all, I think something like 400 bishops come with their retinue with them. And the biggest single issue behind Nicaea was not just that they wanted to have a cohesive statement, but there was another huge controversy that had arisen since the Donatist one, and it came, what do you know, out of the city of Alexandria. And it was a dispute between the bishop of Alexandria and a priest named Arius. Arius was tall and strong and, interestingly enough, black. Um, Bishop of Alexandria was sort of your regular, sort of olive-skinned kind of guy. The dispute was over the nature of Jesus. Was Jesus co-eternal with God, or was Jesus the top of the created order? So was he the first created being that then created everything else, or was Jesus equivalent to God, had always been, will always be? Interestingly enough, um, probably most of the empire agreed with Arius, that Jesus was a created being. And Arius, turns out, did something like Martin Luther. He took pop songs and changed the lyrics to support his position. So you know that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? That's a German drinking song. And Martin Luther changed the words because people already knew the tune. <laughs> and this is what Arius did. He'd walk around singing and people were like, hey, I know that song. Oh, those are good words. And so they sung their way into what's called the Arian belief that Jesus was a created being. He was absolutely charismatic. As I told you, he was tall. He was strong. Um, he wasn't somebody that was considered aloof. Everyone saw him as sort of the working man's guy. And, and, and then there's the Bishop of Alexandria that was, wasn't the singer. <laughs> and, and they were the ones who were going to really sort of have it out at the Council of Nicaea. And that's where I'm going to stop for today uh, and tell you how that council developed. And then we'll get into the creedal language, not next week. John Newton will be here, but in two weeks. Thanks for coming.